It's indeed an honor to be here uh, to speak at the Royal Irish Academy at the beginning of a whole series of events uh, marking the centenary, what will be the centenary next year of the Easter Rising. Uh, I have been uh, studying the... Robert, are you stronger than me? <laughs> Wonderful, thank you. Uh, yes, I've been uh, studying the, um, um, broadly speaking, the national movement, uh, including its ideological as well as uh, the more historical events surrounding the national movement in India. Uh, and more generally in a global context of empire and colonies and decolonization through the 20th century. So uh, what I will speak about today is, of course, uh, a very specific set of events in uh, what was then the province of Bengal. Uh, the, uh, it is it's in rather... It's the far southwest, southeast corner of Bengal, now in Bangladesh, the town called Chittagong, uh, and where, in fact, there was a very curious reenactment of the Easter Rising uh, some years after it took place in Dublin. So, <coughs> it's action at a distance. At the time of the Easter Rising in 1916, Daniel Breen was a member of the Irish Republican Brotherhood. Aged 22, Dan Breen was then working as a linesman in the railways in Limerick and missed the historical actions in, cap in the capital, Dublin. From 1919, he participated in a series of armed actions in the cause of Irish freedom that would make him a major figure in the Irish Republican Army and provoked the government to announce a prize of £1,000 on his head. After the signing of the Anglo-Irish Treaty in 1921, whose terms he did not support, Breen went away to the United States and, according to one source, wrote his memoirs, My Fight for Irish Freedom, on a train journey from San Francisco to New York. He returned to, to Ireland in 1923, to join the Republican Army in the Civil War. He ended his political career as a Fianna Fáil parliamentarian, representing his constituency in Tipperary for over 30 years. When he wrote his book, Breen could not possibly have imagined that it would have so profound an effect on a group of young men and women in an obscure corner of another British colony some 10,000 miles away that they would be inspired to repeat the actions of the Irish rebels in their homeland. In his book, Breen does speak of meeting Gandhi in London in 1921 and describes him as, quote, the most intelligent man and the most implacable foe of Britain whom I have ever met. Gandhi apparently told Breen that armed resistance was impossible in India since it would lead to the slaughter of millions of his countrymen. The story is improbable, to say the least, since in 1921, Gandhi was nowhere near London. But 
Breen did meet other Indians who were open to armed struggle. When he offered his services to the Indian cause, he was rebuffed. The, his Indian interlocutors told him that the Irish could not be trusted since they had given up the struggle for freedom and accepted a truce with the English. Breen's memoirs of the Irish war against colonial rule, however, found its way into the hands of Bengal revolutionaries before it was proscribed by British Indian authorities in 1929. His story of ambushes on arms convoys, attacks on barracks and armories to secure arms, releasing arrested comrades from trains and prison vans, attempting to assassinate the Viceroy, all the while <coughs> leading a constantly mobile life in the underground, escaping the net of surveillance that the government had spread to catch him and his comrades, was both inspiring and instructive to the young revolutionaries of Chittagong, a small town in the easternmost corner of Bengal, now in Bangladesh. What seems to have struck a chord was Breen's account of a small band of selfless and committed young soldiers ready to face death in the war to liberate their country, loyal to their political organization, but not necessarily getting much support from it, striking fear in the corridors of power and gaining the spontaneous sympathy and help of large sections of ordinary Irish men and women in particular, the various armed, uh, in, sorry, um, gaining the sympathy of and help of large sections of ordinary Irish men and women. In particular, the various armed actions showed meticulous planning, precise coordination, elaborate training in the use of arms and explosives, an emphasis on mobility in the appropriate use of motor cars, trains, and bicycles, and a persistent effort to disrupt the enemy's communication and surveillance systems. By the time the Chittagong group launched its armed campaign in 1930, its six leaders were thoroughly familiar with every line of Breen's memoirs. The group was led by a schoolmaster named Shurja Shen, universally known as Master Da, or Brother Master. He is said to have had a completely unremarkable appearance with no pretensions to heroic charisma. Born in 1894, the same year that Breen was born, Shurja Shen had been involved in nationalist revolutionary activities from the early 1920s. His group in Chittagong was associated with the Jugantar Party, a loose consolidation of several revolutionary groups in Bengal. Like many revolutionaries, Sen and his associates participated enthusiastically in Gandhi's non-cooperation movement in 1921, but were bitterly disappointed when Gandhi suspended the movement after the violent incidents in Chauricharra. In April 1922, Shen's group decided to resume violent activities. In December 1923, <clears throat> Anantha Singh, led a daring attack on a horse-drawn carriage in which railway employees were carrying a cash box and robbed several thousand rupees in an effort to collect funds for procuring arms. Singh and Ombika Chakraborty were arrested, but Shurja Shen, revealing a skill that was to perplex and frustrate the colonial authorities to no end, remained underground for two years 
before he too could be sent to prison. In 1928, a large number of political prisoners were released. Shunjo Shen's group joined the Congress as a useful cover for their secret preparations for armed action. In, uh, armed action. in 1929, Shen was elected secretary of the Chittagong District Congress Committee, and his younger associates, Ganesh Ghosh and Loknath Ball, were given charge of the Congress youth and student organizations. Onontha Singh was appointed by the Congress-controlled Chittagong municipality to promote physical training among the young. <coughs> Shurja Shen and Ombika Chakraborty, along with his comrade Nirmal Shen, took up residence in the Congress office, diligently and openly carrying out their duties in the National Political Party. They began recruiting and training a small hand-picked band of dedicated young men, mostly high school students. Shurja Shen is said to have argued that students made the most reliable revolutionaries since they were not affected by the self-centered preoccupations of middle-aged family men. The chosen few sometimes operated openly as Congress volunteers. Many were active in the sporting clubs and gymnasiums that Onontushing and Loknath Ball supervised. Of course, those chosen for specialized training with bombs, guns, or chemicals operated in great secrecy. Even their families were usually unaware that their sons, and in a few cases, daughters, were involved in such dangerous projects. It required a certain reading of the political pulse before the group could launch a major armed action against the colonial regime. The moment came in September 1929 when Jyotin Dash, a Bengal revolutionary associated with Bhagat Singh's activities in Punjab, died in a jail in Lahore after a 63-day hunger strike. There was a, a mammoth outpouring of public emotion in Calcutta when his body was brought back for cremation. Memorial rallies and meetings were held in every town in Bengal, including Chittagong, where Ganesh Ghosh and Ananta Singh, according to the intelligence reports, quote, seized the opportunity to inflame the minds of their youthful listeners. The six leaders now got down to the task of making detailed plans and preparations for a spectacular action by the secret organization that Shurja Shen had named the Indian Revolutionary Army, IRA, Chittagong Branch. <laughs> in the meantime, in the western corner of India, Gandhi began his salt march, culminating on 6th April 1930 in his arrest, thereby beginning a countrywide civil disobedience movement. In Chittagong, Shurja Shen announced that on 21st April, Congress leaders would publicly break the sedition laws by reading out from proscribed literature. Secretly, he had chalked out very different plans. The armed revolutionary groups began their activities in Bengal from 1906, when the Shodeshi movement, the first wave of mass nationalist agitations, broke out against the, against the partition by the British of the province of Bengal. There were two main organizations, the Jugantar group, operating mainly in Western Bengal, and the Onushilon Shomiti, with its center in Dhaka in the east. 
The groups consisted almost exclusively of men from the educated and propertied Hindu upper castes. The leaders of the Shodeshi movement, such as Aurobindo Ghosh and Bipin Chandrapal, were members of the extremist wing of the Congress, which condemned the liberal politics of petitions and slow constitutional reform advocated by the moderates and demanded complete independence from Britain. While carrying out their secret plans of assassination of British officials and procuring arms from foreign sources, the Jugantor and Onushilon members often participated openly in the activities of the Congress and in some cases secured important positions in the Congress organization. In April 1908, a bomb was thrown at a carriage in Muzaffarpur town in Bihar, killing two British women. The real target was the district judge, Douglas Kingsford, who in his earlier posting as a magistrate in Calcutta had become a hated figure in nationalist circles because he had ordered the flogging of political agitators. Khudiram Bosch, aged 18, was arrested the next day as he was on the run, while Prafullo Chaki, only a year older, when cornered in a gun battle with the police, shot himself to death. It transpired that the two had mistaken the carriage for one that belonged to Kingsford. Khudiram was tried, sentenced, and hanged in Calcutta in August 1908. Khudiram Bosch and Prafullo Chaki became the first martyrs of the new movement. For the next few years, even though there were not many significant attacks on British targets in Bengal, the revolutionary organizations spread quickly, especially in the districts of Eastern Bengal. A list compiled in 1912 by the intelligence branch of the police of those suspected of being members of secret groups in the different districts of Bengal had more than 800 names, along with information on the activities and associations of each person. The list of persons connected with revolutionary groups in Bengal who were actually convicted in court on various charges added up to 651 at the end of 1920. <clears throat> there was no doubt that the call to take up arms to rid the country of its foreign rulers held a great attraction for young men from educated upper caste Hindu families. The networks also extended outside Bengal. Hem Chandra Kanungo of the Jugantar group went to Paris in 1906 to make contacts with socialist and anarchist revolutionaries and returned with instructions on making bombs and maintaining underground organizations. In northern India, Rajbihari Bose was a key organizer, setting up branches in different cities, attempting to incite a mutiny within the army and planning the spectacular bomb attack in 1912 on the Viceroy's ceremonial procession in Delhi. Lord Hardinge, the governor, the, the Viceroy, though badly injured, survived the attack. Rashbihari Bose escaped and spent the rest of his life in exile in Japan. With the outbreak of the World War, some Bengal revolutionaries set up a plan to import a shipload of German arms by sea. Norendra Bhattacharji was sent for this purpose to Batavia. He would later become famous in the international communist movement under his assumed name of M.N. Roy. Jyotin Mukherjee, better known as Bagha 
and four others made their way to the Orissa coast to receive the arms. The plot was discovered by British intelligence. Baghajatin's group was intercepted by armed police and after a gun battle, surrendered. Baghajatin died from his wounds to become one of the most celebrated martyrs of the movement. As is well known to this audience, there are similar stories of the failed import of German arms by Irish revolutionaries during the First World War. In Bengal itself, a couple of attempts were made in this early phase of uh, early phase to assassinate senior British officials, including the governor Fraser. Both attempts were attributed to the Onushinol Shomiti and both failed. Otherwise, the list of terrorist outrages compiled by the police in the period up to 1917 is dominated by robberies on private homes of wealthy and not so wealthy Indians in a bid to collect funds for procuring arms, the killing of dozens of Indian policemen, mostly of low rank, and a few murders of activists suspected of betraying the cause. Not surprisingly, these incidents, far more numerous than the few spectacular strikes against the alien rulers, are largely forgotten in the memorialized history of the revolutionary movement in Bengal. There is a trend in the historical literature to characterize this early phase of what British officials called terrorism in Bengal as an amateurish, almost infantile attempt to organize an armed struggle for national liberation. Hem Kanungo, after spending 12 years in prison in the Andaman Islands, alleged in his memoirs that the revolutionary leaders never grasped the importance of adopting proper methods of prolonged secret organization and instead sought quick publicity. As a result, the groups were easily, easily penetrated by the police and their plans scotched. There was not enough emphasis on rigorous and scientific training in the use of arms, which was why so many of their actions were unsuccessful. Curiously, he put the blame for this on the unwillingness of Indian leaders to learn from the experiences of revolutionaries in other countries. Later historians have largely agreed with this judgment. Shumit Sarkar, for instance, concludes, quote, Taken as a whole, it is difficult to avoid the conclusion that revolutionary terrorism was a heroic failure. The British were certainly badly frightened, as shown by the intensity of repression, but their administration was never in any real danger of collapsing. The bombs took far greater toll of Indian subordinates than of their white overlords. Lacking a peasant base, the revolutionaries could never rise to the level of real guerrilla action or set up liberated areas in the countryside. As for the average educated Indian, he derived vicarious satisfaction from the deeds of the heroes and watched and admired from a distance. This conclusion is entirely reasonable if one takes revolutionary terrorism as one particular organized form of nationalist struggle contending with other forms such as liberal constitutionalism or Gandhian non-cooperation or agrarian agitation. There is no doubt that the debates of the time were framed as debates between these forms, these rival forms of political action. Modern Indian historiography has, for the most part, 
followed that framework by continuing to evaluate the relative successes and failures of those contending tendencies. But if we regard all, all of these movements as parts of a single formation of anti-colonial nationalism linked to each other by complex discursive and organizational connections, then our judgment on successes and failures would no longer be so straightforward. Thus, even the apparent failure of one tendency, judged by its own terms, might produce the effect, though unforeseen, through unforeseen discursive possibilities, of enabling the success of another tendency. Historians of nationalism have become far more aware in the last three or four decades, following the path-breaking work of Benedict Anderson, of the subtle but powerful working of the nationalist imagination, enabled by the print, visual, and oral media in forging large anonymous communities. The early history of revolutionary terrorism in Bengal needs to be seen from this more recent analytical perspective. It is not true to say that the Bengal leadership at this time had no conception of the broader political context and horizon of the different elements of armed resistance to colonial rule, or that they were ignorant of, ignorant of or uninterested in the historical experiences of other nationalist struggles. In fact, the weekly Jugantar, which served as a platform where the intellectual leaders of the extremist Congress came together with revolutionary activ activists, conducted considerable discussion on the history of revolutionary struggles in Europe, the Americas, and Asia, as well as on the specific strategies and tactics of modern warfare, including guerrilla war. In particular, three examples from recent history were repeatedly discussed. The unification of Italy as a successful case of nationalist armed struggle against imperial rule, the continuing struggles in Ireland as an example of armed anti-colonial resistance, and the military successes of Japan as a demonstration of what could be achieved with sovereign nationhood. In each case, the lesson drawn was the moral legitimacy and historical viability of nationalist armed resistance. If there was a more specific theory behind these early attempts at armed revolution, it was one that could be called the theory of exemplary action. A favorite argument that was often cited in the literature of the time was the huge disparity between the small number of British officials and soldiers in India and the millions over whom they ruled. Jugantar quoted a British visitor as saying, quote, an Indian once said to a friend of mine, it is very extraordinary that the British should maintain their hold of India, for there are so few of you and so many of us that if you could all be collected together in one spot and each of us were to take a pinch of dust between our thumb and forefinger and sprinkle it upon you, you would all be buried under a mountain a mile high. Given this disparity, the argument went, if even a small fraction of Indians could be motivated to actively resist the British military superiority, then British rule would become unviable. Continuing with the quote, if even one-tenth of the people of the country feel in their hearts the pain of subjection, 
Then when the, when the English seek to test their strength by deploying their soldiers, the unarmed resistance will turn violent, causing a huge conflagration. Out of that sacrificial fire will emerge the goddess, promising protection. On her, on her forehead will be written in burning letters, liberty. The operative part of the strategy was thus to initiate a series of assassinations of British officials by a few brave revolutionaries prepared to sacrifice their lives in order to break the climate of fear and hopelessness. It is in interesting to note that even when historians have characterized the effort of the terrorists, the so-called terrorists, as a failure, they have remarked on the effect their actions had on the morale of the nation. Omulesh Tripathi wrote, quote, they might be wrong, but as Yeats asked about the Easter Risers, and what if excess of love bewildered them till they died? And was such sacrifice altogether in vain? The land brooded over the martyr's memory. Its imagination was stirred to its depths and the apathy of centuries disturbed. When Gandhi gave his call to a more arduous struggle, more arduous because it was non-violent, India was ready. But it is not clear from this account why the failed actions and deaths of a few individuals should have such a miraculous effect on millions of Indians of the next generation. The problem lies in the attempt to measure the linear impact of the so-called terrorist movement defined by a distinct ideology and strategy in comparison with other competing movements. Instead, if one looks for the horizontal spread achieved by certain events in facilitating the imagination of a political community called the nation, one might better appreciate the historical effects and significance of the early revolutionary movement in Bengal. Consider the following description from official sources of the funeral procession of Kanailal Dotto, one of the accused in the Alipur conspiracy case, who killed his former comrade Noren Goshai in prison after Noren had turned approver. Kanai's hanging in November 1908 had been announced in the press, and I'm quoting from the uh, police report. An extraordinary scene was witnessed at Kalighat at the time of the cremation of Kanai, whose body after the execution was made over to his relations for disposal. Crowds thronged the road, people pushing past one another to touch the beer. The body was strewn with flowers and anointed with oil. Many women, to all appearances of a highly respectable class, followed the funeral procession wailing, while men and boys thronged, the, 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 thronged around shouting, Joy Kanai! This Kanailal Dotto was a person of humble origin, a weaver by caste. He gloried in the deed he had committed and went to his execution without flinching. After the cremation, his ashes were being sold in Calcutta as much as five rupees an ounce being paid by some enthusiasts. It is believed that the supply was made to suit the demand and that the vast amount of ashes sold in Calcutta as the ashes of Kanailal Dotto was 50 times the genuine amount that ever existed. This affair had a most pernicious effect on the minds of the youths of Bengal, so much so that in the following January, Lolith Mohan Ganguly, on being arrested, made a false confession 
to having murdered a policeman. He subsequently admitted he had made this false confession because it was the dream of his life to have a funeral like Kanailal Dottas. How are we to understand this event? Kanai had been guilty of shooting to death a former comrade who had betrayed the cause and whose evidence would be used against the accused. Did that make Kanai a popular hero? There was some skillful plotting involved in smuggling a revolver into the prison and arranging to meet the approver who was kept, uh, kept isolated from the other prisoners, but that was not why the people revered him. It was, everyone said, his selflessness, volunteering to do the job in order possibly to lighten the sentences of his comrades by eliminating Norin, who would then become unavailable to testify against them in court. Kanai knew, of course, that he would never be able to escape and that a death sentence was inevitable. Yet, not once did he break down or repent, repeating several times during his trial that if the situation arose, he would do it again. It was the patently disinterested honesty of his act and the fact that he was punished to death for it that made him an object of reverence. Stories about Kanai's resolution in the face of interrogation, threats and inducements circulated in the Bengali press after court reporters managed to learn about them from the accused. On the morning he was to be hanged, there were hundreds waiting outside the prison gate even before daybreak. The funeral procession is said to have been the largest Calcutta had seen until then. Further, even as people tried to make sense of this extraordinary set of events in terms of traditional notions of heroism and martyrdom, the reason behind Skanai's death appeared as something completely novel. He died for the country, people said. But what was this entity called the country that could claim the sacrifice of a young life and turn thousands of unrelated people into a single community of mourners? It is at moments such of shared experience that the nation as an imagined community is born. Unlike the judgment of historians, the popular imagination appears to have been captivated by the very amateurishness of various actions of the revolutionaries. Their youthfulness, their lack of careful calculation, their unwillingness to weigh costs and benefits, in short, their remoteness from the world of professional politics. It is this that explains the sudden and perceptible expansion of the boundaries of the nation in the period following the early revolutionary activities, something that could never have been achieved by the cumulative addition of constituencies by the organized politics of nationalist mobilization. It is curious that when more than a decade after the first actions of the Bengal revolutionaries, Gandhian activists launched their non-violent campaign to break the laws of the colonial state, they invoked the same rhetoric of sacrifice. Non-violent non-cooperation was in fact an insistent invitation to the colonial power to use its violence in the most immediate way possible by inflicting injury on the bodies of the agitators. Congress volunteers were bound by, their by the pledge of sacrifice, offering their bodies to the violence of the state. 
Even when the state refused to inflict harm on the body, Gandhian nonviolence could employ the extreme technique of the fast unto death, making the imperialist state complicit in the destruction of the lives of its colonized subjects. The myth of legitimacy of legal violence is thus broken. The nation is galvanized into a collective desire for the destruction of the colonial state. Contrary to the reasoned arguments of historians about the strategic efficacy of armed versus peaceful methods of anti-imperialist struggle, popular memory seems to judge the heroes and martyrs of both movements by the same criterion of sacrifice. This is what explains the indiscriminate coexistence of terrorists and Gandhians in the hagiography of popular nationalism, in songs and theater, textbooks and children's literature, calendar prints and portrait galleries, street names and, and statuary. Looking at the popular print of nationalist heroes circulating in the bazaars of small town India, Christopher Pinney found that armed revolutionaries such as Khudiram or Bhagat Singh appeared to attract as much reverence as Gandhi or Nehru. Forget your quibbles about strategies and tactics, about ends and means, the popular nationalist imagination seems to say. In the greater narrative of the nation, they are irrelevant, confusing, and misleading us into fruitless debates and succeeding only in hiding what was really at issue, namely the fundamental illegitimacy of the legally constituted order. That is what we all wanted to destroy and replace by a new constituent power ourselves. Let me come to the Chittagong uprising itself. It's remarkable how carefully the Chittagong group, when preparing to go into battle against the fundamental, against the formidable British Indian state, tried to correct the mistakes made by its predecessors. Shurjashen declared there would be no robberies of innocent Indians to raise money for acquiring arms. Instead, members were asked to collect whatever they could from personal and family sources. Shen also encouraged his boys to cultivate contacts in the villages that dotted the hillside beyond the town, because that is where they would have to retreat when inevitably the state began its campaign of retaliation. He also made a significant political move that broke from the previous pattern of revolutionary organization in Bengal. Instead of many, sorry, instead of shunning Muslims whom the older leadership did not trust, Sen actually actively sought the cooperation of many Muslim farmers, artisans, and laborers and gave them specific tasks on the periphery of the organization, even though there were no Muslims in the inner core of the group. This turned out to be crucial in the period when the army was trying to hunt them down in the hills. The rebel, rebels found refuge in the predominantly Muslim villages whose inhabitants refused to inform against them. The Chittagong leaders were also meticulous in ensuring that none of those chosen for action could possibly be a police informer. A crucial part of their preparation had to do with motor cars. Anantu Singh came from a well-to-do family and drove around in a tiny car known as the Baby Austin. 
The rebels had planned to seize a couple of taxis on the day of the action because cars would not only give them greater mobility but significantly add to their pretense to authority when intimidating sentries guarding the official buildings they planned to take over. They had a windfall when two days before their planned action, a young comrade brought in 1,400 rupees taken from the family safe. This enabled them to make a down payment on a brand new Chevrolet car, which they bought on an installment plan. The Chevrolet, said Ananta Singh later, was to us the equivalent of an armored car. The rebel army consisted of a total of 64 men, mostly between the ages of 16 and 20. While Shudra Shen was their political leader, the military commander was Ganesh Ghosh, designated Field Marshal, followed by Loknath Bol, the general, and Onontushing, captain. The plan was to first damage the railway lines coming into Chittagong and cut the telegraph wires, burn down the telephone office, then simultaneously seize the armories of the auxiliary force and the police lines located at opposite ends of town, and finally launch an attack on the European club. The rebels would then proclaim an independent republic in Chittagong, occupy the treasury and the courthouse, open the gates of the prison, and hold the town and its surroundings for at least a week. It is unclear if the plan was always to time the spectacular event for Easter, since the Irish example was obviously very much on their minds. But it is possible that circumstances matured in, in such a way that the action had to be carried out in April and the evening of Good Friday appeared as the appropriate moment. As we will see, this decision led to the collapse of one major element of the plan. Just before 10 p.m. on 18th April 1930, a goods train carrying boulders overturned a few miles north of Chittagong. No one was hurt. Soon after, the telephone office in the center of town went up in flames, destroying the switchboards and other equipment and silencing the 300-odd telephones they served. The single operator on duty was overpowered but left unharmed. Ganesh Ghosh and Anantu Singh in military uniform drove their commandeered taxi to the gate of the police lines. Pretending to be British officers, they shouted that the gates be opened. When the sentry did so, they entered and shot him dead. Firing their pistols, the rebel field marshal and captain shouted, Run for your lives, Gandhi's rule has come. The tactic worked. There were no British officers in the police lines that night. Realizing that the camp had been attacked by political activists, not a single policeman stirred out. The rebels went into the armories, took away all the arms and ammunition they could, they could and destroyed the rest. All the time shouting slogans, they found the Union Jack and burnt it. Shen then hoisted the Congress tricolor minus the spinning wheel in the middle. The rebels had achieved all their objectives so far with only a single police sentry killed and no casualties on their side. In the meantime, another team led by Loknath Bol drove a Dodge taxi to the auxiliary force armory. Loknath, fair-skinned and well-built, was dressed as a British officer. Seeing him, the sentry saluted and opened the gates. But a British officer ran up and challenged the group. 
he was shot dead. Three or four other British and Anglo-Indian officers who had come out took to their heels. The rebels drove up to the armory, tied the door handles to the back of the Dodge car and pressed on the accelerator. The door burst open. Once again, they had an entire armory at their disposal. But even after an hour's search, they could not find any ammunition. It dawned on them that it was a routine procedure in military armories to keep the arms and the magazine in separate locations. It was a bitter disappointment. The group attacking the European club had also drawn a blank. They had faced no resistance at all, but found the club completely empty. An Indian waiter explained to them that it was a holy day for the sahibs who were all at home praying. The rebel plan of a mass execution of inebriated Europeans came to naught. Despite the setbacks, the entire team assembled as planned at the police lines where Shujashin proclaimed the formation of a provisional revolutionary government. But as they watched their jubilant young soldiers celebrate their victories, the leaders realized that without the expected supply of ammunition, they would not be able to hold their positions for long. They dithered over their next course of action. In the meantime, a small British contingent had regrouped and begun firing from a heavy Lewis gun. The rebels returned fire, and after a while, the firing stopped. Around 2 a.m., the leaders began to think of leaving the police lines and moving to the north of town. But before that, they had to set fire to the armory so that the weapons would not fall in the hands of the enemy. The whole place was doused with petrol. At this point, a misdirected matchstick caught Himangshu Sen's petrol-drenched clothes. Within seconds, his body was alight in flames. With Himangshu screaming for help, Anuntashing brought round his car, pulled Himangshu in, and accompanied by Ganesh Ghosh, sped off into town in search of medical assistance. For all their careful planning, the rebels, now faced with the unexpected surprises of the battlefield, began to show glaring signs of inexperience. Anuntashing and Ganesh Ghosh had been overwhelmed by their concern for the badly burnt Himangshu but expected the others to stick to their original plan to enter the town and establish control over it. The other leaders in the police lines, on the other hand, left with three cars loaded with light weapons that would have been hopelessly inadequate to fight against a heavily armed enemy. In the absence of their military commanders, they decided to abandon the cars, take whatever arms they could carry with them, and trek up into the hills. Shing and Ghosh, after leaving Himangshu in a safe uh, house, waited for the others. When they did not show up, they took the car back to the abandoned police lines and then up the dirt road into the hills, hoping to receive a signal for their comrades. They failed to make contact. Realizing that their plans had been aborted, they finally took shelter in a country boat off the seacoast several miles away from town. The small British community in Chittagong, consisting of government officials, railway employees, and their families, were in a state of complete panic. 
By early morning, the women and children were taken to a ship docked in the harbour. Using the ship's telegraph apparatus, the district magistrate sent a message to Calcutta reporting the uprising and seeking armed reinforcements. The police then launched a systematic house-to-house search in town, arrested the family members of known leaders, and discovered more than, that more than 50 young men were missing from their homes. It took a whole day to clear the train wreckage and repair the railway lines. Armed contingents of troops began to arrive in Chittagong from the morning of 20th April. Despite repeated attempts from both sides, the leaders in the hills had been unable to establish contact with their two military commanders. In the meantime, British and Gorkha troops began their operations of scarring the hills in search of the rebel army. On the 22nd April, the troops began to fire on suspected rebel positions in Jalalabad Hill. The fire was returned. Two attempts to overrun the rebel camp failed. On the third attempt, the army machine guns prevailed. The British troops found 12 dead bodies. After securing their photographs, fingerprints, and other forensic evidence, the bodies were thrown in a pile, petrol poured over them, and burnt. In spite of repeated searches, including sorties by military aircraft, the surviving rebel leaders were not found. Onontoshing and Ganesh Ghosh, observing the re-establishment of British authority in Chittagong, made their way to Calcutta and finally to the safe haven of Chandanagar, a French enclave some 25 miles north of the city. Even though the rebels had failed to reenact the uprising in Dublin on the streets of Chittagong, their deeds had an electrifying effect on revolutionaries in Bengal. An authoritative intelligence report observed that the raiders had, quote, set in persons who lost their life fighting with the military and police an example of patriotism which must stir the youth of Bengal with feelings deeper than any evoked by the deeds of political assassins of the past. There was a clamor among young men and even women to join the secret groups and emulate the brave Chittagong warriors. In the next three years, a wave of assassination of senior British administrative and police officials swept through Bengal. Among these, two young women shot dead a district magistrate while a university graduate pulled out a gun from under her academic robes and shot at the governor, Stanley Jackson, at the convocation of the University of Calcutta. She missed her target. Anantha Singh, Ganesh Ghosh, Ambika Chakraborty, and Loknath Ball were arrested by October 1930 and put on trial in Chittagong, along with 28 others. Another 25 were listed as absconders. There was huge public support for the accused as they were brought to the the courtroom and leading nationalist lawyers from Calcutta joined their defense. The principal leaders chose to argue their own cases, examining prosecution witnesses in great detail, thus prolonging the trial. Secretly, they resumed contact with Shurja Shen and Nirmal Shen still hiding in various hillside villages and devised an elaborate plot to bury explosives inside and outside the walls of the prison. 
The plan was to detonate the dynamite sticks at the same time that explosions occurred at other locations in town. In the resultant confusion, the prisoners would make their escape. But the plot was discovered in June 1931. The archival sources are unclear on how the provincial authorities in Bengal came to a decision to seek a truce with the revolutionaries. Perhaps the surprise revelation of the dynamite plot persuaded them that despite the arrests and trials, the revolutionary organization had remained intact and potent. Perhaps the governor Jackson, who incidentally in his younger days had been captain of the English cricket team, thought that an unannounced pact with the armed groups might make it easier for his administration to deal with the Congress civil disobedience movement. In any case, in return for a promise not to prolong the trial or engage in further plots, the Chittagong leaders in prison were offered not to be given the death sentence and those charged in the dynamite case to be let off with light punishments. Some agreement must have been reached because the dynamite case was begun and concluded in a single day with the government pressing relatively minor charges. The main trial concluded in March 1932 with 12 leaders being sentenced to transportation for life, 14 given jail terms of two or three years and 16 let off for want of evidence. Not even Ananta Singh, Ganesh Ghosh or Loknath Bol accused of killing several policemen on duty while waging war on the King Emperor were given the death sentence. They were sent to the infamous prison in the Andaman Islands. Shurja Shen and Nirmal Shen hiding in the hills and with prizes of 10,000 rupees on their heads did not feel bound by any truce made with the government by their comrades in, in uh, truce made with the government by their comrades in prison. They continued to plan further actions. By this time, two young women, Pritilota Wadadar, a school teacher, and Kolpona Dotto, a chemistry student, had been recruited into the organization. Priti was asked to join the absconding leaders in Dolghat village and told that she was to lead the next daring action. As they finalized their plans, the house where they had taken shelter was surrounded one night by a team of soldiers led by Captain Cameron. Nirmal Shen engaged them from a window and shot Cameron dead. In the ensuing confusion, Shurja Shen, Priti and another comrade managed to slip through the cordon but Nirmal, Nirmal was shot in the chest and died. Shurjashen led the others to another shelter. Late evening on 24th September 1932, the European Institute Club at Pahartuli in Chittagong town, frequently mostly by, frequented mostly by Anglo-Indian policemen and railway officials, was suddenly rocked by bomb explosions. The club was quite full at the time and the lights went out after the first explosion. Despite the darkness and confusion, most managed to find their way out of the club. When things quietened down, one woman was found dead and seven men and four women badly wounded. For the next few days, the police launched a hunt for the perpetrators, but none were found, except the dead body of a woman in male clothes. She had with her pamphlets from the IRA Chittagong branch 
declaring that the lives of all Englishmen and fair-skinned Anglo-Indians had been forfeited to it. She was also carrying a handwritten statement in English in which she asked, quote, why should we, modern Indian women, be deprived of joining this noble fight to redeem our country from foreign domination? The post-mortem revealed that Prithilota Wadadar, leader of the raid, had swallowed potassium cyanide. Clearly, the right of sacrifice was more important to her than the protracted war of independence. Shurja Shen, now constantly on the run, was accompanied at this time by a small group of five or six young men and one young woman, Kolponadotto. They had moved from one village to another, rarely spending more than two or three nights at one shelter. On the night of 16th February 1933, they were in a house in Goirala village when they were surrounded. All of them managed to get out, but were separated. Golpona spent over an hour submerged in a pond before she got away, as did the others. But Shurja Shen, moving through the jungle in the dark, bumped into a Gurkha soldier, who, without knowing who he was, promptly captured him. The authorities, enjoying a rare stroke of luck, had made their prize catch. Following the arrest of their leader, the organization secretly elected Tarokeshwar Dostidar as the new head. The intelligence reports speak of plots to rescue Shurja Shen from prison and point to Kolpana Dotto as a particularly dangerous absconder because of her expertise in explosives and chemicals. Early morning on 18th May 1933, soldiers surrounded the house where Tarokeshwar, Kolpona and four others were staying. After a shootout in which two rebels were killed, the entire group was arrested. The trial of Shurja Shen, Tarokeshwar and Kolpona was completed in two months. On 14th August 1933, Shurja Shen and Tarokeshwar Dostidar were sentenced to death and Kolpona Dotto to life imprisonment. Shen and Dostidar were hanged inside the prison and their bodies never handed over to their families. Their comrades were certain that they had been taken by boat and thrown into the sea. Chittagong memorialized. The Chittagong leaders in prison were all released by 1946. Most of them had by then converted to Marxism and joined the Communist Party. Some were later elected to Parliament and the State Assembly. In the memorialized history of the freedom movement in Bengal, the Chittagong uprising still holds pride of place. Dozens of books have been written on it, and I think something like half a dozen films made on it. Not unlike the Easter Rising in Dublin, it is not so much the immediate military mm -hmm. or political outcome of the rebellion that is remembered, but rather its outrageous audacity and the brave sacrifice that went with it. As recent historians of Ireland have pointed out, the blood sacrifice of the Easter martyrs marked a watershed in attitudes of not only the Irish people towards the prospect of Republican independence, but also the British rulers about the tenability of continued colonial rule. In that sense, the Chittagong rebels did succeed in producing exactly the same historical result in India. Thank you.